your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me here in studio to close out the week in style, my good buddy Harmon Dial. Harmon, what's going on, man? Having a blast. How about you? I'm having a blast too. It's been it's been a week, uh, but I'm happy to always to have you on here. And we're going to talk about the Canucks, a team that, as we're recording, is tied with the Boston Bruins for first in the NHL in point percentage. And I'm clarifying that because our pal Thomas Dranz is recording in the other studio. And I know if I go by just pure points, he's going to rush in here like the Kool Aid Man and start screaming <laughs> at us. But they are by raw points. They're also four points up on the Jets. They have two more games played than them, but still, uh, we're going to talk more about the significance of that in a second here. I think the reason why I want to have a full conversation with you, initially I was going to have you in and we were going to do mailbag and kind of bounce around the league. And I know you're writing about a bunch of other stuff as well in The Athletic and we could have fun with that. But I really want to dive into this Canucks team and their performance this season because I think for the most part, the national discourse about them has been lagging a bit behind, I think, in terms of the team's on-ice play. If you've been monitoring it from game one through game 48, the results have been pretty consistently positive right they've been winning a bunch of games and doing so with a good goal differential but it really feels like as the year has gone along their performance has improved and a lot of the underlying indicators we look to try to figure out how they're going to play in the upcoming games have all ticked up as well and I think that's very encouraging for people like you and I who are trying to sort of kind of look under the hood a little bit and try to figure out whether this is sustainable or not yet for whatever reason it seems like every Canucks conversation is PDO go burr, right? Like there's, yeah. there's there, and, and it's certainly still elevated. They lead the league, right? And when you're first in shooting percentage and second or third in save percentage the way they are, you're generally going to have that sort of high total. But I don't think that's necessarily fair in terms of encapsulating the trajectory of their season as these games have gone along. Absolutely. I'll say this. Of course, being somebody that is analytically inclined, the way that this team plays is a complete 180 degree turn compared to how they were before the coaching change. There's just so many factors that have gone right for this Canucks team. And really at its core, you have a roster where almost every player on the roster is exceeding expectations. Now, of course, there are some parts of it, such as the bottom six, where you're like, okay, they're going to cool down a bit. You're not expecting Sam Lafferty or, or Nils Hoaglander to score to score at 20-plus goal rates on your fourth line. That's, uh, of course, a lot to ask for. But legitimately, this team has played a lot of sound hockey, and they're getting a lot of praise from opposing head coaches as well. I mean, Nashville's uh, Andrew Burnett early in the season when Arizona came in. Um, their head coach as well, noting that the Canucks are one of the NHL's best teams at pressuring the puck which sounds crazy to say considering again where they were where they were a year ago yeah but it's true they force turnovers all over the ice and when you look at why they why there's been such a night and day difference in their defensive play outside of just the goaltending so much of it starts in the offensive zone with how dominant that forecheck is um and how it allows them to really control play. And lines one to four, all of them can do that. And really, it's it's been interesting because I think it's easy to go on NHL.com and look at the point and, and goal uh, goal leaders and go, oh, it's just the stars carrying them, right? Pedersen, Miller, right. Hughes, Besser. And those guys have been magnificent. But quietly at five on five, the top of the lineup among you know the first and second lines, there are actually quite a few nights where they aren't their sharpest because they're a little bit too reliant on P- 
Pedersen and Miller. I'm sure we'll get get to mm-hmm. that later as we discuss deadline needs. But their bottom six legit carries play. It's not just the inflated shooting percentage and PDO. Last I checked a couple weeks ago, the Canucks had like a 53% control of expected goals when Pe- when Patterson and Miller are on the bench. Right. So this is a team that their third line, especially with Garland, Bluger, and Joshua, has been one of the best third lines in the NHL. The fourth line, Hoaglander and Lafferty, are operating at um, at a great rate outside of just the goal scoring, just how they use their speed to, to win battles. Um, this supporting cast is completely completely different than the one we saw last year even even when we talk about uh, the blue line it's it's a totally different team well and the reason why i wanted to really just unpack the context of this season they're having is i had our pal kevin woodley on earlier this week and we got into a brief sort of surface level conversation about this but i thought having you here in studio we could sort of really just unpack all of it and get into the nitty-gritty and the details of it is this is a team that is first in the league in in time leading by like over 200 minutes, I think, this season, right? They've led for 51% of their game time, which is just stunning this late into the season. And they've also trailed, I think, the second fewest amount of time as well, which makes sense. If you're leading a lot, you're probably not going to be then trailing as well. Um, I, I think the Bruins are the only team that's trailed less than them. They're around like 18% of their game time. And I'm fascinated by this idea of how game state and scoreboard are influencing some of these underlying results for them. And I, and I think that's an important conversation. Part of it is tough to parse because it's, it's, it's chicken or the egg. And, and what I mean by that is the top three teams in terms of fewest time spent trailing are the Bruins, Canucks, and Jets. The top three teams in team save percentage this season are the Bruins, Canucks, and Jets. And so on the one hand, and and I think, right, Hellebuck and Demko in some order are one, two in pretty much every Vesna conversation. And then Swayman, I think, would be if he wasn't sharing so many starts with Linus Allmark this season. But you get into this fascinating sort of theoretical exercise, I guess, of like, are these teams leading so frequently because they're getting such good goaltending? Or are they like continuing to lead throughout the game because of the alternative? Because for me, like I, I think we know that score effects are a real thing, right? But also the way you play when you're leading versus trailing changes dramatically for most teams, right? When you're trailing, you start pushing a lot. You start sort of sacrificing shot quality for shot quantity because you just start trying to get as many pucks on net and trying to get back in the game. Whereas if you're leading, you sort of sag back a little bit but then because the other team is is so aggressive in their own offensive approach, if you get the puck out of the zone, chances are you're going to have a chance for like an odd man rush counter opportunity, right? And I think we're seeing that with this Canucks team a little bit where Sportlogic has them with 4.8 rush chances per game this season. They're the only team in the league below five, right? And And so on the surface, it's like, all right, so much of hockey in 2024 is a rush-based approach. I've done a lot this past week talking about the Flyers and how much I admire how like they're this insanely rush heavy team so it sounds like i'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth but i think in this case it's sort of by design right like i'm sure the canucks would like to get out more in transition and attack off the rush but it feels like when they do they're very dangerous opportunities and i think a lot of that is guided by what's happening on the scoreboard if you know what i mean absolutely and we've seen it just this past week where you look at uh, the saturday game against the leafs the canucks go up Three, no, three nothing in the first period, and the number of games where, forget just getting a lead, but getting it so early in the game, scoring within the first ten, ten minutes, as the Canucks have done really often this year, <clears throat> they do that, and from that point on, 
like the Canucks had a dominant first 10, 10 minutes, but you look at the end of the game and the Leafs had double the shots. Well, a big part of that was because the Canucks were went up 3-0. Yeah. Uh, in the Chicago game, Canucks were dominant through the first 10 minutes or so, and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be a romp of this Blackhawks team without Bedard. But as soon as they get to 2 nothing, they sort of just put it in cruise control, and Chicago starts to come on, and they um, create a lot of shots. And you can just tell, especially a team like Vancouver, that is so reliant on playing an aggressive, up-tempo, we're going to pressure the heck out of you. When they go up in games, it's hard to maintain that same level of tenacity when you have something to lose. And then the more, most recent game against St. Louis, one of the rare times that the Canucks go down to nothing, and it's a game that they dominated in terms of shots. Yeah, they started playing way differently because they had to. Exactly, and you could just see, okay, they recognize they're trailing, they're playing extremely free, and you see what it does for them in terms of territorial dominance. Uh, against that um, Blues team. So absolutely, absolutely, you're right. There is something there, I think, to um, how much they're leading and even the score-adjusted shot metrics perhaps not fully accounting uh, for that. Well, I think their statistical profile in terms of the volume and then where the shots are coming from at both ends of the ice are so intriguing to me and, and paint a really compelling picture that extends just way beyond the superficial shot save percentage and our, our sort of conventional understanding of them because defensively they give up the fewest rush chances in the league which is stunning for someone who watched them play last year for yeah. example they're sixth in expected goals against the corners poor logic and they're ninth in fewest slot shots allowed now all of these are massive improvements from as recently as last year as we talked about a lot of that goes i think credit to rick tockett and the job he's done and sort of we always wonder about coaching impact and like how much of it is randomness how much of it is all these different factors and how much of it unfairly or like gets attributed to coaching right generally you get good results like oh the coach is doing a good job all of a sudden the puck stops going in or you don't get saves it's like oh the coach needs to go and in this case though I think fundamentally like the design and the approach of where these shots are coming from and how they're playing can be so neatly and directly traced back to I think what he wants this team to look and play like and so for me that is really interesting and then offensively they're 27th in shots. They're 25th in shot attempts, but they're ninth in inner slot shots themselves, and they're third in offensive zone possession time. And I think when you put all of these things together, it's kind of exactly what we're saying, which is they're leading a lot. They're holding on to the puck deep in the offensive zone. They're kind of grinding out possessions. And I think that's in big part why the save percentage, for example, is is as high as it is, right? Like, like Thatcher Demko's been phenomenal, and he's healthy this season, and he deserves all the accolades he's going to get. But for me, if you just look at the the sort of environment for him, it's so night and day compared to last year, and I think it's not random or, or PDO-fueled in, in, uh, in that way. I think it's actually, like, the result of a very sound change in approach that this team's made. Absolutely. The the rush side of it is is massive because one of the... Biggest differences you notice immediately upon Taka taking over was him making it a non-negotiable that the forwards have to manage the puck responsibly through the neutral zone. So we can talk about their lack of offense off the rush. That's that's by design. They they want to dump and chase, create that way because they know that if we're not turning it over at the offensive blue line, we're not going to give up chances off the rush. Especially now that the forwards are also providing a lot better uh, back pressure. So. Ironically, their rush 
defense dominance starts with them consciously deciding that, hey, we're not going to be a high uh, volume, controlled entry, making pretty plays off the rush type of team. We're going to be a blue collar, just gain the red line and rely on winning a lot of puck battles, controlling the boards, uh, that sort of way. And then even their offense, it's been so interesting to see the way that they will recover pucks down low, shift it from low to high, and they're, I think, one of the NHL's best teams at getting traffic in front, screens, deflections, rebounds, and their defensemen, especially when you look at Hughes and Hironic, do a masterful job of shooting for sticks and mm. consistently hitting them on target. So you have, I think, a lot of situations where, like the Toronto game is a perfect example. In that third period where the, where the Canucks went up 3 nothing. They sort of controlled that net front area offensively. They won a lot of those second chance opportunities. And it's not just the big guys. It's not as if they have a size advantage because actually, statistically, the Canucks forwards are one of the smaller groups. But you have tenacious guys like Garland and Hoaglander that really fight for chances, uh, are uber competitive. And they just seem to always be in sync. You watch them in the offensive zone and and they talk about... um, attacking in layers, layers, there's always somebody bothering the goaltender sightline. Whereas defensively, it's often the opposite where they've added some meat and potatoes on the back end. Guys like Susie, who of course has unfortunately been plagued by injuries, but uh, Ian Cole, uh, even someone like Noah Juleson, who I didn't think was going to be particularly good. Um, as a result of that, they're Zadorov, another example. As a result of that, they're a team that boxes out well in front of their own net. They don't um, give up a lot in terms of like losing battles around the front of their net defensively. And I think that's a big reason why, when it comes to the quality side of things, that they control play. What's their PDO at right now? Do you, do you know off the top of your head? It's like 105 still or I something like it's that. It's, there, it's yeah. very, very inflated still, certainly. I'm not trying to make the the argument that the things that Canucks do result in a 105 PDO, you know, that 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 running joke in hockey Twitter. What I will say though is I do think this paints like a compelling picture of strategically trying to play a certain way and then obviously masterfully executing that, right? And that's the reason why I brought up like the 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 shot volume in terms of attempts compared to inner slot and then offense's own possession time, which I think sort of quantify exactly what you're seeing when they're playing at their best right i think they're they're not necessarily just spamming low percentage shots it seems like much more sort of accountable this year in terms of passing the puck down trying to extend the possession looking for a better play in tight right and and i think that's being reflected by the shooting percentage now the one concern that i would have i guess is like the sequencing of the scoring where regardless of, I think, how well you're playing or how well you're executing, there's going to be times like that Blues game the other night where something weird happens and the other team just goes up early, right? And, like, you're just, no matter what, you're probably not going to keep winning or leading 51 52% of your game time, right? I think that's going to regress. And so when that happens, they're going to have to open it up more and play a different way, right? I think it's, like, very easy to sort of map out, all right, we go up early and then we can really skip to our, really stick to our script in terms of what we want to do and the notes we want to hit in both zones and then reinforce everything, right? Whereas if you go down 2 nothing, 3 nothing early and then all of a sudden you kind of have to throw that out the window and start taking more chances 
and trading rush chances and opening things up, this team certainly has players who I think could benefit offensively from that type of environment. But maybe that would all of a sudden start to show more kind of cracks in the armor, I guess, or maybe he's concerns with this roster if they were forced to play that type of game more often. Yeah, that's a really good point. I hadn't considered it through that lens as much. And, and to that point, I think it's going to be important, of course, for them to upgrade the top six, but also if they want to go deep in the playoffs, their power play needs to be on point. I know on paper, last I checked, it was still top 10 uh, in the NHL overall, but um, as of a week ago, I know they scored a couple power play goals lately, but between like December 1st to roughly call it mid-January, their power play was in the 20s, I think, somewhere around 24th in the NHL, um, which when you speak about the possibility of later down the stretch and going into the playoffs, the sequencing of these you know goals potentially changing, and now you may be in a situation where, where you're going to have to come back in games, um, that power play needs to be a massive difference maker for them. And it's been interesting because they've had to adjust without Bo Horvat in the bumper, who for a three-year stretch there was their highest uh, goal scorer on the man advantage. They're still trying to find that fourth forward to really click because it doesn't seem like Kuzmenko um, is going to be a fit with this team um, in the in the medium term and he's already been bumped off that top unit recently they've been going with Pia Suter and you know, he scored against St. Louis had a third period hat trick but uh, I don't think he which the fans didn't even really realize until after the fact and that some belated hat started raining down on the ice afterwards but that was that was pretty funny I know, poor Suter, because even in the aftermath of that game, there was all that talk about Pedersen and the OT and all, all the post-game quotes that came out that everybody just, like, forgot about his hat-trick. <laughs> but anyway, I don't think he's the answer in the bumper uh, on the first unit. I mean, he's never... He had, like, seven power play points before this season. Uh, he is scoring goals this year, but he's not a high-end finisher. And for Vancouver to go deep in the playoffs, I think they need their power play to be a massive difference maker. So that's again an area that I'm looking at and going that needs to get back on track for them to hit their potential as a team well and what's interesting about it let's talk a little bit about that bottom six then because I think you're right like we've spent so much time talking about the seasons that from a goal scoring department the Bessers having Miller Pedersen with his upcoming contract and we'll get into that a little bit obviously Quinn Hughes right like the top players have been eating offensively and you look atop the leaderboard in, in points and they're there but it's so interesting how they've got this weird setup now where the top six and bottom six kind of play much differently. And actually the bottom six is posting very elite underlying metrics and and really dominating the play. And I think doing exactly everything we just talked about that I think Rick Tockett wants them to do, right? Like you watch that game on Hockey Nanny Canada against the Leafs. And in that first period, it was Garland and Joshua and, and, and Hoglander's line that were giving the Leafs a lot of problems with exactly this, right? That puck pursuit, um, grinding offensive zone possessions, just making them, like punishing them below the goal line and then turning those loose pucks and turnovers into scoring chances, right? And I think that's how you get the types of shot metrics and chance metrics that like Garland's line has, for example. But you almost need to separate the top six from the bottom six right now just in terms of both results, but also I think like stylistically, what they're trying to accomplish, which is which is really interesting to me, because often we hear how like coaches want the whole team to play a certain certain way, right? And then it's like one size fits all, and in this case, it's very very delineated, I think, between the two. 
Yeah, I mean, it's pretty remarkable how much Garland is... I mean, look, Joshua and Bluger have been excellent, but both of them have been fourth-line caliber players for the most part before this year. So the fact that they're now having career years on one of the best third lines in the NHL, looking at basically any metric you want to look at, whether it's shot metrics, chance metrics, actual goals for and against... It's a massive testament to Garland as the sort of underrated engine of this team's five-on-five five, uh, play because it's easy for out-of-market fans to look at his point totals and go, guy's going at half a point a game, decent player, nothing special. But really, what he does for that line to transition pucks up the ice, what he does uh, to win battles, what he does as a playmaker to set set things up for Joshua and Bluger, how connected they are as um, as a line when they break out and always knowing where the next play is going to be, how they control play down low, how little they surrender defensively because of how dogged Garland, Joshua, and Bluger are on the back check, how smart they are positionally. It's um, They've been Vancouver's most consistent line this year. Uh, there's been a lot of games where, again, outside of lately the lotto line when it first got put together in early january outside of that sort of stretch there's been a lot of nights where top six gets outshot outplayed at even strength and it's on the back of that garland line that they're able to score the first goal and and that line sort of drags a team into the fight um honestly like four out of market fans that's probably the most underrated part the most overlooked component of this Canucks team yeah I think their work rate and just the motor is just it's such a handful like you're seeing especially if they get out there against a third pair or a bottom six line for the other team like how outclassed those guys are and how they're able to leverage that into just punishing them time and time again I've got it down Joshua and Garland they haven't spent the full season playing with with Bluger obviously they have recently but just those two as a combination at 515 400 minutes this season, 57% shot share, 62% high danger chance share, 61.4 expected goals share, up 21 to 9. And Garland and Joshua have 18 5 goals combined, and they've drawn 27 penalties between the two of them, right? Like what you're getting from those two guys is so fascinating. Now, Garland, obviously, you know, there was that talk at the start of the year where like he was either asked for a trade or was like hoping the Canucks would facilitate something. I think the team was pretty open about looking for a suitor and really just I think the reality of the market right now where wingers making between four and five million with future money attached to them generally are not viewed as assets in the league and and we'll get more into that when we talk about Kuzmenko in a second here but what's interesting about this Canucks team as you look ahead is I think they did such a masterful job as an organization this past summer of finally taking the right approach in terms of like smart, low-risk, calculated bets without term attached to them with a lot of the signings and moves they made, right? And that was such a departure from the way this organization's acted in the past where it was like, yeah, you get a four- or five-year contract and you get money and you get term and, and like everyone in the open market would just get anything they want unless it was like they're writing their own contracts. And in this case, they take all, like, oh, it's a lot of these one-, two-year deals, very sort of savvy stuff. And now all these guys are having career years, basically, and and so it's kind of a double-edged sword or a blessing and a curse because now I think a lot of guys like a Joshua and, and Bluger and Pew Suter are going to be significantly more expensive than they previously were under the deal they signed with the Canucks. And now it's going to be another test for this organization, I think, in terms of how they respond to that, whether 
they get sucked into the success and then wind up picking up the tab on it or whether they feel like they can just go out and find the next guys that'll fit that mold like i'm i'm we'll get our answer obviously i think this summer but just i'm fascinated to see how they approach that dilemma in terms of like how they respond to the success that all these guys who are up for new deals are having uh, as career seasons. Yeah, especially because they also have um, a lot of UFAs on the back end. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and so this is where I crunched the numbers about a week ago, where last year when Quinn Hughes was on the bench, so you got the second or third pair on the ice, the Canucks were minus 43 in terms of their 5-on-5 five five goal differential. It felt like whenever the bottom four was on the ice last year, they just could not move the puck. They, It was awful, right? You had the OEL Myers pair, disaster. This year, they've, of course, brought in Cole, Zadorov, Susie. Myers has had a bounce-back year. Juleson's been solid when he's been in the lineup. And they've been plus 13 in non-Queen Hughes minutes, which is pretty remarkable because they went out and last year at the deadline got Philip Pronick, and a lot of people, including myself, assumed that, okay, you want to um, balance your high end top for defensemen, so let's you know perhaps split Hughes and Hironic up. That was you know thought process in training camp. I think they pretty quickly realized that we don't have the ideal partner for Hughes if we use Hironic on the second pair. So they they just went okay, we're going to play these guys together, and it's been remarkable that the second and third pairs, which essentially they're, it's more like. There isn't really a defined second and third pair. It's more like uh, a bottom four that plays relatively even minutes and is just full of number four or five defensemen. Right. A bunch of really tall guys. <laughs> a bunch of really tall guys. And the biggest surprise is, like, yeah, you expect them to improve your defensive results, but puck-moving-wise, they've been totally fine. They haven't um, had issues with breakouts, which has, in years past, been um, a massive pain in the rear for this Canucks blue line. So... Then when you shift the conversation to these depth pieces, a lot of these UFAs, um, I think it is a big reason why the Canucks are incentivized to go for it a bit this year because you're going to have to pick up the tab on some of these guys, not to mention Pedersen contract, uh, Heronic contract as well. So this is probably the best your cap situation is going to be. So even though it's... On the one hand, a lot of people may assume, oh, it's the first year the Canucks are going to be good. They're going to have a really long window for contention here. They can afford to be patient. That's not really the the case here because this might be a unique opportunity where you got so many guys in the middle of careers, probably not going to be able to afford to keep everybody. Um, I I think that's a strong reason to to make additions at the deadline. Yeah, it's kind of the cruel nature of this sport and also a hard cap world i know it's going up by four million or whatever for this upcoming season but it's like you you make a lot of smart bets you you scout or develop or or whatever you like find pieces that fit and get the most out of them but then you can't afford to fall in love with them because that's how you make mistakes right and it's almost like it really is a blessing and a curse let's take a let's take a quick break here and then when we come back We'll pick things up with harm, and we'll keep talking about the Canucks. You're listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network. All right, we're back here on the Hockey PDO cast with Harmon Dial in studio, closing out the week on the PDO cast. 
Harm, so before we went to break, you were talking sort of about this concept of the window for the Canucks, right? And certainly for a team that has had a really rough past couple seasons, this is the first year of, of success in a while for the organization, right? And generally, in that case, you look at it and go, wow, this is the first of many. Like, we can look forward to this. And I think certainly with a core of hopefully Elias Pettersson for a long time, Quinn Hughes, Thatcher Demko, and Nett, like, these are all players who are firmly in the meat of their prime seasons and and this isn't necessarily a one-off but a lot of the names around them probably will have to change over time i'm kind of curious for your feel on on the level of aggression within the organization in this upcoming trade deadline because it's obviously been a group that is very willing and almost eager at times to make trades certainly so i think like they will be exploring all the options, but just in terms of how much they're going to go for it this season, because they are first in the West. There's a lot of things to like about this team. And there's also a lot of questions and unknowns about what it's going to look like as soon as next season. So where are you at with this in terms of the approach, I guess, between now and, and whatever the deadline is like five weeks or so um, in terms of how this team's going to act? I expect the Canucks to be aggressive. We heard Jim Rutherford recently sort of asked about the topic of uh, their deadline approach. And he highlighted that, yeah, there's a risk with going for it at the deadline. But he also highlighted that there's risk in not going for it and not taking advantage of your window when it feels like everything is perfectly uh, aligning for you. That, I think, right there, when, when he mentions the risk of not going for it and sort of says that they're co- also comfortable with the risk of Hey, sometimes you make you make uh, you make a move. You sort of go for it, and go for it, and it doesn't work out. Um, plus, you combine it with Rutherford's history in uh, Pittsburgh, where he was never shy of making big splashes. I think the writing's on the wall in terms of them being aggressive and sort of. I look at this situation where you have Pedersen right now, finally over his deal, making seven point three five million. Um, Heronic in the mid fours. Both of them are going to require massive extensions and, of course, all the other depth UFAs that they have. I think back to Colorado in the year that they won the Cup. I think it was one of the final years of McKinnon's sweetheart $6.3 mm-hmm. million deal. Um, they had Kadri and, and Burakovsky. And you could sense that they felt the importance of going for it with this window of contracts. They weren't sitting back and going, well, we have McKinnon, McCarr. Uh, Nichushkin, another example of a, a player that was going to need a raise pretty soon. Uh, Bowen Byram was on his ELC, and I think he led the, the team in like five-on-five five ice time in the Stanley Cup final. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And so they, they went for it, went for it at, the, at the deadline. And I think it also goes to show that going for it doesn't mean trading all your good picks and prospects for rentals. Um, they went out and acquired Arturi Lekkinen, um, paid a a, a pretty hefty price at the time, but he was the perfect fit for them. Unbelievable through the, uh, their cop run mm-hmm. and has been a great fit since then. Josh Manson. Um, and we've seen with a team like Colorado now when they have all these new contracts to pay out that, yeah, they have the same talent at the top of the lineup, but their middle six isn't anywhere near what it used to be. And it's been, uh, you know, they're still a contender, but that was their best chance Um earlier than maybe many would have thought of considering how young that team was. Now, not to say that 
that the situation with the Canucks is totally fair comparable, but that's the sort of thought process you have to have is in today's NHL, you can't look just at the age of your core. You have to look at what contracts do we have? What's the timeline of when we're going to have to pay guys? In Vancouver's situation, they have to do something especially within this window um, where they have Hughes at under $8 million and Demko at $5 million. So that gives you, what, another three-ish years or so? It's not, um, it's not the longest window. No, it's not. And you certainly got to optimize it. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm generally one to kind of take more of a like, cautious, calculated approach. Like, all right, let's not go crazy trading everything just for a season where you might lose in round one, for example, right? Like, you want to extend this thing. But I think there's a couple things working in the favor of a very aggressive approach for this season. One is obviously what well, I think we talked about at the top of the show, which was it's not just that they have kept winning, but they've like the underlying process has improved a lot, and a lot of the indicators suggest that they're playing much better as well along the way. Two, this is an organization that hasn't had a home playoff game since 2015, right? They they obviously had that special season right before the pandemic, and then made a bit of a run in the bubble, but that was a unique circumstance where they didn't get to play in front of their home fans. They've got, like I had uh, our pal Thomas Drance on, I think last week now, I don't know, all the days are blending together, but we had a full episode talking about Elias Pettersson and all the calculus surrounding his next contract. And he's made it very clear that the thing he prioritizes above all else is being in a competitive environment where he feel like he feels like he can play meaningful, important games competing for a Stanley Cup. And so I think if you're getting to the point where he even said like we're gonna wait till after the season to talk and figure this out i imagine seeing this thing through and actually getting to play meaningful playoff games this year will go a long way towards convincing him to sign a contract that says eight years on it as opposed to like three or something like that um so there's that and then there's also the fact that around them i know a lot's been made of kind of like how open things are atop the league this year and how there's no real consensus favorite i think the western conference is very clearly superior to the east right now and that would be scary but one of the developments of the oilers going on this massive run they've been on is i think a lot of the fear about like winning the west and then getting the oilers as a wildcard team in round one has been alleviated right because that obviously would have been a disaster and in this case now it really looks like the one seed in the West will most likely, assuming the Kings figure this out a little bit and stop just playing absolutely horrendously, will most likely be like Nashville or Arizona or I guess maybe Seattle, right? Like it's going to be a team that I think is pretty clearly inferior in a lot of ways to an Edmonton or LA or even Vegas if they fell off and, and fell into a wild card spot, right? So I think making a push for finishing not only first in the Pacific, but first in the West. And they're competing with Winnipeg, but also with Colorado and Dallas and whoever comes out of those three is also a kind of motivating factor for like improving your team as much as you can for the rest of the regular season. Because all of a sudden, if the path is, all right, we're going to get to play Arizona in round one. And then in round two, we're going to play whoever survives a bloodbath between Vegas and Edmonton. Like, all of a sudden that seems much more encouraging for a sustained long playoff run than whatever I guess it looked like it might be as recently as two or three weeks ago. Absolutely. And it is pretty crazy how like a month ago um, it looked like, yeah, the Canucks would have a shot at the Pacific, but 
Vegas and LA were right there. It's pretty remarkable. Of course, Vegas getting banged up by a ton of injuries, LA completely falling off the map. That now the the main threat for the Canucks is ironically the Oilers, um, who've of course been on this um, massive tear, but they're still the favorites. Plus, here's the other thing to keep in mind when it comes to this idea of sort of quote unquote going for it. The Canucks win their division regardless of how deep they go in the playoffs. Their first round pick is going to be in the mid-20s or later. Like, you mm-hmm. think about Colorado um, last year. They, of course, got eliminated in round one by Seattle, but because they won the Central, they picked 27th. Right. So that's something to keep in mind when you're valuing your first-round pick in Vancouver shoes at the deadline is there's a good chance that pick is going to be deep into the 20s. You, you look at the data, first-round picks are not created equal, and the value really drops off in the 20s. Yeah, so. going from, like, 18th overall to 26th is... It's almost like it's basically a second rounder at that point. Exactly. So that chip, to me, is super expendable. Um, plus, when you're talking about wanting to put Pedersen in a, in a situation where he's comfortable staying, it'd be unbelievable to go out and be able to get him a quality winger because I bet that he's not been thrilled having to lug around Ilya Mikheyev and Andre Kuzmenko, even Sam Lafferty at, at points earlier in the season. Um, how much of a blast would he have playing with a legit running mate who could also drive play, also produce chances? Um, I'm sure that would go a long way, and it's legit need for this team because when I look at them as a potential playoff team, they still have too many games where that top six does lose the territorial battle. I don't think that's an indictment on Pedersen or Miller by any means. I think that's more reflection that, hey, they're the only real drivers in the top six. And so if one of them has an off night, nobody else on that line can pick up the slack, which you might think looking at somebody like Brock Besser with all the goals that he has, Right? Oh, it must be a play driver. He's not really. He's a finisher. Yep. It's not somebody that has the speed or dynamic puck um, puck play to transition play up the ice, to create chances on his own. Everybody else in the top six is reliant on Miller and Pedersen being the ones to create chances because Mikheyev is a passenger. Kuzmenko's been a passenger this year. And the left winger that has typically been next to Miller and Besser um, this year, whether it's been Suter or um, early in the year, DiGiuseppe, Hoaglander for a bit, um, they're passengers slash complimentary players as well. And it's really noticeable that, hey, if JT Miller has a game where he's, you know, a couple turnovers in the defensive zone, he's not sharp. Um, it's it's like, oh, well, nobody else on this line is going to do the heavy lifting to get us out of the defensive zone to um, transition pucks up the ice to create scoring chances on their own. That's not a recipe you want going into the playoffs. Well, and what's interesting as well is I think they could approach it any number of ways. Like I think just adding a talented needle-moving player pretty much anywhere in the lineup I think would be a valuable addition, and and that might even be in the form of a defenseman. Like we've heard a lot about Chris Tanev, for example, and and that potential fit, and then that may be freeing up the situation where you actually could split up Hughes and Hronick, and and maybe Hronick can carry his own pair and give you a different look that way. I just did a show about the Avalanche and was talking about how both them and the Jets, I think, have such an obvious need for a second-line center that there's going to be a really fascinating bidding war that emerges, I think, and there's so few 
names that make sense in that regard. Like it seems like every conversation is basically Elias Lindholm or people talking themselves into Adam Henrique because he's the most likely alternative. And so you don't want to get into a situation where it's like, all right, well, that's all we desperately need. And so now we're going to get into that with, with those teams. In this case, you could just go and add a winger to help Pedersen. Or if you do decide that, all right, the acquisition cost actually isn't that exorbitant, you could potentially, like JT Miller might be the winger that you're looking for yeah. for Elias Pedersen. And then you bring in a center who might not necessarily be as dynamic, but can give you like just keep you your head above water i guess territorially at five on five and that might be the the approach i don't know there's any number of ways i think they could go yeah i'm sure trans and i will do a full deep dive soon in terms of potential targets but i think my one of my dream ideal fits considering that you'd get multiple playoff runs out of him and i know it's probably unrealistic in the sense of um why would they trade him as a pavel buchnevich as, as right. a guy that can drive play um, had 79 points in 74 games last year. Smart two-way player. Could also help you out on the penalty kill. Um, I just look at him as like the uh, like a, a great fit stylistically for what this team um, wants. And, of course, I think he has one year left after this one. Multiple, so you get multiple playoff runs out of him. Um, and so if St. Louis is falling out of it, could that be the type of piece that you try and make a, a big push for? I, I don't think the Blues would have the greatest appetite to move him, but if they are committing to this retool and they look at Buchnevich's next contract, what it would take to keep him, maybe they they are at least open to listening. And so, I mean, that's an example of a player that I like in the sense that you don't just want a finisher. I mean, sure, any top six player will, will be a good addition, but if you just acquire a guy that can put the puck in the, net, in the back of the net, but he's reliant on somebody to feed him all these right. chances, that still puts you in a position, I think, where, again, if Pedersen has an off night or if Miller has an off night, that at 5-on-5, five five, you're going to lose that matchup. Whereas if you acquire, hopefully acquire a guy that can also pick up the slack and being able to transport Pox up the ice, have some offensive zone creativity, um, amplify Pedersen and Miller as well, make them better, that I think that diversifies your top six a little bit and make sure that you don't have sort of all your eggs in a couple of baskets. I mean, you don't have to sell me on Pavel Buchnevich, obviously, as people who listen to the show know. I've, I've been on a, a big fan of his for years. Hearing you speak, though, and, and this might fall even more so into the camp of I'm not sure he's available right now or what it would take to convince the team to go this route but man Travis Konechny is from everything you're mentioning there in terms of and he's basically like a supercharged version of everything we just said about the bottom six right it's like pace puck pursuit motor competitiveness with also like he's gonna score 40 goals this season and he has that next year as well um under contract I imagine he would be a Rick Tocca favorite immediately oh, yeah. and would make this team so much better now. Like, he's playing really well. I think Philadelphia obviously loves him as well. He might just be there long-term as they see this rebuild through. But, man, I much prefer going that route and potentially paying a little bit more to actually get someone of real substance for multiple runs as opposed to sort of the traditional trade deadline approach, which is like second-round pick and prospect or whatever for a guy who is going to come and go and not really actually make much of a mark, right? So I don't know. I'd be so fascinated with that. And and I think 
from just this conversation and everything we're talking about, I, I that might actually be a palatable choice for for this front office, right? Uh, like talking themselves into actually going that route and paying a lot for a player like this as opposed to the alternative. Yeah, I'd 100% pay the premium because, again, I think back to what happened with uh, Boston last year, for example, right? It, this isn't a case of, you know, where you're, where you're side-eyeing the Canucks quality as a contender. I mean, Boston last year was on this historic regular season path and they go out and they make big splashes as well for Orlov, Bertuzzi. And it made sense on paper because, hey, Bergeron and Krejci, they're probably going to be gone at the end of the season, may as well go for it. But both of them actually performed pretty well. Bertuzzi, I think, led the Bruins in goals and points in that playoff series. Orlov had eight assists in seven games as well. And yet, you get eliminated in round one, and it just feels like, oh, what could have been with those pieces, right? Uh, so, yeah, I'm definitely with you in the sense that I agree sort of with, with the idea of paying extra and, you know, what, like Tampa did it really well um, when when they went out and uh, acquired uh, Coleman. Of course, yeah. Um, Goodrow. Hagel. Hagel. Yep. Of course, I liked what Colorado did with Lekkinen. Um Even different positionally, but look at what a game changer it was for the Oilers to go out and get Matias Ekholm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you pay that price, but you, you get a player that's actually part of your core, not just a rental that you graft on temporarily. Um, that's definitely what I would be trying to do if I was in the Canucks position. Yeah, and on the one hand, I think I'd be wary of taking on future money because of all the unknown, but at the same time, like locking in a, a, a net positive contract for beyond this season... I think would also alleviate a few headaches as well, right? Like it's like, all right, well, we've got this player and, and and he's gonna live up to that and then that's one less thing to worry about and we know now what our internal budget is heading into the off season, whereas like you just bring in another rental or something and then and then you enter the summer, it's like, all right, we basically have to fill X number of spots and we have no idea how much money we have left or even if we have enough and who's gonna be here and it becomes a whole mess of its own. Yeah. I, I'm actually going to do an article pretty soon here looking at the history of um, of every team in the last decade that's traded a first-round pick for a rental, how it panned out, how deep they went in the playoffs. And uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but you do not get a good return on Yeah, and anecdotally, it doesn't seem to have a huge success rate. It, yeah, I mean, people would point out somebody like an Ivan Barbashev last year as, oh, rental, they, they won the cup. That's a fair point, but number one, he was more in that second tier of rental where they gave up Zach Dean, who was a former late 2021 first-round pick who hadn't been trending great. So that's more you're giving up. It's not like giving up a first-round pick. That's You're giving up a prospect in lieu of like a second or a third. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a second-tier player, plus they re-signed him. Yep. They had the cap space and understood that, okay, if there's a good fit here, we can keep the guy. Same thing with um, what L.A. did with... Um, Gavrikov, right? And, of course, Corpusala was part of the trade as well, but um, this understanding that, okay, if a guy fits well, we know, we're, we're pretty confident that we can keep him. That's a much different conversation than we're going to go out and, let's say, acquire a piece like Jake Ensel. I was going to say, Schmake Schmensel. Something <laughs> yeah. that rhymes with that. Yeah. <laughs> that um, we love as a stylistic fit, but can you realistically afford him beyond the season? Probably not, no. unless you gut out a lot of contracts and are really creatively thinking outside of the box. 
um, that's probably not the best bang for your buck. All right, Harm, we got to get out of here. End the week. Good. Uh, this is a good segue then, because you're mentioning how you're going to be working on this. Let the listeners know where they can check you out, but also what else you've got in the works or what you've done recently that uh, that they can check out. Yeah, I uh, do a lot of Canucks and national work uh, at the Athletic. Um, had some good stuff this week. This week, looking at uh, the Calder race, can Faber knock off uh, Bedard? Um, did a under the radar ten trade candidates with uh, Chris Johnson. Uh, which is uh, always fun looking at some guys that have been falling out of favor. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot of deadline-related content coming up uh, for both the Canucks and um, the league as a whole. So it's uh, always an exciting time when we uh, approach trade season. Awesome, buddy. Well, keep up the great work. We're going to have you on again shortly, I'm sure. Thank you to the listeners for listening to us. My only plugs are join the Discord server. Uh, the invite link is in the show notes. We're going to be doing a bunch of mailbags in the upcoming week or two with uh, with games slowing down for all-star breaks. So get your questions in, and you can do so by joining that. And check out the YouTube channel as well. Actually, speaking of Travis Konechny, if uh, you're a Canucks fan listening to this and all of a sudden you uh, you perked up and got interested, I just did a big episode on him with Daryl Belfry, uh, which you can listen to. It's a full deep dive of him and everything that he's been doing this season. And yeah, that's going to be it. I uh, hope everyone has a great weekend, and we'll be back Monday with plenty more of the Hockey PDO cast, as always, streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.